Welcome to the Academy Exchange, HIV Today and Tomorrow. In this podcast, we discuss the latest advances in HIV prevention, care, and treatment, as well as examine the societal and systemic issues facing people with HIV. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Academy Exchange podcast. Once again, my name is Bruce Packett, and I'm the Executive Director for the American Academy of HIV Medicine, which is a DC-based organization that represents HIV care providers and all their attendant issues and concerns. Um, What we normally do on this podcast is talk to our healthcare practitioners and other subject matter experts on clinical and social issues around HIV care uh, and treatment and, of course, prevention. But we try to render all the heavy clinical medical language into more everyday speak for a general listenership. Um, I think maybe not surprisingly, most of our episodes so far have probably focused most heavily on the sexual side of HIV transmission risk and those behaviors that drive the epidemic. But we haven't talked much specifically on this podcast about substance use disorder, which is, of course, another epidemic that has really ravaged many parts of the country in terms of deaths, overdoses, um, the overall burden on the healthcare system, and of course, the transmission of infectious diseases. To talk to us today about the specifics of substance use disorder and its overlap with the HIV epidemic, I have with me Dr. Hanan Braun. Uh, Dr. Braun uses either he, him, or she, her pronouns and is an HIV primary care doctor and addiction medicine specialist at Denver Health in Denver, Colorado. He completed an internal medicine residency at Boston Medical Center in 2021 and fellowship in addiction medicine at Brown University in 2022. Dr. Braun, welcome to the Academy Exchange. I look forward to speaking with you uh, for a few minutes today about your work in addiction medicine and the substance use disorder epidemic in this country. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited for this conversation. Absolutely. Uh, Before we dive directly into substance use disorder and HIV, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about your work specifically, your clinic, and sort of a day in the life of Dr. Braun to kind of set the stage for our conversation today. Oh, sure. So I uh, practice at a large urban safety net hospital in Denver, Colorado, and my work is a mixture of general internal medicine, primary care, um, a, a couple addiction-focused um, clinics and uh, a couple of HIV primary care clinics. Uh, there's obviously a lot of overlap between those areas, and I do my best to integrate it in a way that uh, for patients feels um, feels easy. I work primarily in the outpatient space, although I do a few weeks a year on the inpatient addiction medicine consult service as, as well. That's that's really great. Thanks for that background. So now diving specifically into uh, you know addiction medicine and substance use disorder, can we just start as I normally like to do by defining uh, our terms? So we can start with defining substance use disorder, and I want to make sure that we can draw a fairly clean clinical line between what we might recognize as casual recreational use and then the diagnostic substance use disorder and and how it's specifically diagnosed. Can you sort of walk us through those definitions? Absolutely. Um, So I'm I'm a physician, so I tend to operate in a medical model, and I understand uh, a substance use disorder to be a chronic condition uh, with periods of remission, uh, perhaps return to use. And as you said, and your question was actually a very good one in that acknowledging that not all substance use is disordered use of the vast majority of Americans will try an addictive, a potentially addictive substance in their lifetime. Most Americans don't go on to develop a use disorder. So we do have diagnostic criteria um, that help us. So largely it is defined as continued use of a substance despite its negative consequences. 
Um, we also see, along with the continued use despite negative consequences, a lack of a loss of control as well as use that has become compulsive. So uh, those are the, the main hallmarks of a substance use disorder. Right. That's really helpful as sort of diagnostic criteria. I have a follow-up question to that um, that I'm curious about. Is there any difference in the kinds of substances being used to be able to apply a diagnosis or, or do you apply the diagnostic categories across different potentially addictive substances? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we There are um, DSM criteria uh, to define a substance use disorder. There are 11 criteria and depending on how uh, many a patient meets, uh, we can further define a, a substance use disorder as mild, moderate, or severe. Um, that said, I, um, not all substances uh, are in the DSM, such as, you know, for example, caffeine uh, is not in the, the DSM. Um, but in clinically speaking, what you're, what I think your question is asking is, you know, clinical approach to managing a patient who has an opiate use disorder versus, let's say, a methamphetamine use disorder um, does it, it, the treatments are different, the complications can be different. Um, so clinically it obviously does, um, does matter quite a bit. Right. Of course. Um, you know, I think a lot of our listeners at this point in history are, are probably pretty aware of the scale of the devastation caused by substance use disorder. I mean, we even have some TV dramas and other cultural representations of, you know, things like opiate prescribing practices in the 90s, um, Purdue Pharmaceuticals and, and their hand in worsening the crisis. But what can you tell us about the latest state of the overdose crisis? Where are we now in the arc of the overdose epidemic in this country? So we think about the opi opioid overdose crisis in three waves uh, traditionally, and, and as I said, we are in a, a fourth wave now. In the 90s, we had overdose death um, related to prescribed opioids, um, and then once prescribing became more restrictive, we did see heroin use um, driving overdose deaths, and then several years later, around 2013, 2014, depending on where in the country you are, the emergence of illicitly manufactured fentanyl and its analogs um, are quite potent and also quite dangerously. The potency can vary from uh, sample to sample, um, driving overdose um, deaths. And we're really now in a, in a fourth wave, which is characterized by polysubstance use, particularly stimulants such as methamphetamines and cocaine. Um, and unfortunately, we're seeing we're seeing fentanyl contaminating other substances as well, such as um, such as stimulants. So, folks who are intending to consume um, a stimulant and not an opioid may still be at risk for an opioid overdose, and that that's that's really scary. Right, scary proposition for sure. Um, and and any sense of where the overdose peak might be? Uh, you know, could we be reaching peak overdose, or or are we are we yet to hit that point? What can we expect we, in the near future? We don't know where the overdose peak is, and and that is that's very scary. Uh, there's a we're running out of wall space on our memorial walls at a local harm reduction organization I volunteer at. Uh, it's just it's really scary. Uh, it's a really vivid and, and frightening image for sure. Um, now, as we start to to pivot into the overlap of substance use disorder and HIV as an infectious disease, I'm hoping you can underscore some of the epidemiological considerations of the two together. Um, for example, can you help us disaggregate HIV risk from injection and HIV risk from sex? What do those numbers look like de demographically and epidemiologically? 
Well, um, so currently about one in 10 new HIV diagnoses in the United States are among people who inject drugs. Um, one thing that I think is underappreciated um, is that sexual risk and injection risk really do go hand in hand for, for many patients. Um, so as a clinician, it's important to be asking about any activity behavior that will um, carry a risk of, of transmission. Um, and unfortunately, you know, not all, um, unfortunately, not all communities face the, um, experience these numbers uh, equally. We, we do see, you know, for example, one in seven black women who inject drugs will contract HIV in her lifetime. And that is as, as opposed to one in 26 women generally and one in 42 um, men who inject drugs. So we, we are, we do have quite a, a bit of disparities in, in HIV transmission, unfortunately. Absolutely. Sure. Um, so again, in your clinic, when, when you have a patient who, you know, you, you discern likely requires treatment for substance use disorder, um, what's your method for them assessing HIV risk for that person who is also actively using substances? Yeah. So um, as you said, I mean, the, the, what's behind your question, which I just want to call out is that um, H, I mean, assessing HIV risk really should be integrated into all of our standard substance use disorder treatment spaces. Uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, we our care is quite siloed, which will probably not be news to anyone listening to this podcast. Um, and, you know, as an addiction medicine provider, we're often good about asking about um, injection-related risk factors. In sexual health clinics, we might be good at asking about sexual uh, risk factors. But really, the, we should be asking all patients about um, all um, all of these potential risk factors and, and behaviors. Um, I ask about specific injection um, practices, and I, and I do that because it will change my management. Um, I ask questions like, how many times a day do you use a substance? How do you inject? Where you inject? Where do you get your needles from? Um, when was the last time you shared? And then, um, and and oftentimes people think about sharing as the syringe itself, although we also know that sharing other injection equipment like your cottons or your cookers also uh, carries risks as well. So I ask about all of the above. I, I try to ask use phrases like how often do you use rather than a yes, no question, do you use or not? Because that obviously, um, you know, who would who would respond to a question like that with a, with a yes? Right, absolutely. And that's all super important data as you're sort of assessing HIV risk, um, all of those things you mentioned. Um, and it's really consonant with the this sort of novel uh, HIV status neutral approach. Um, and, and then prevention methods are implemented where needed and, and, and treatment and care on the other side. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of leads us to what the biggest question I want to ask you today, which is, how is it that we can help prevent HIV transmission in people who inject drugs? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is an exciting space in that we do have very effective strategies to prevent HIV transmission and overall, you know, improve the health and safety of, of folks who inject drugs. So um, just to go over it broadly, we have medications for opiate use disorder, uh, which I'm happy to talk more about. We have syringe exchange programs, syringe access programs, um, condoms. We have um, pre and post exposure prophylaxis. Um, which kind of the questions that I was asking about timing beforehand will help me determine what's the best right. clinical approach to that, um, that patient um, and condoms, of course. 
Uh, we do talk about, sorry to interrupt, we do talk about PrEP and PEP uh, quite a lot in some of the other episodes. Um, could you just briefly describe those interventions and what they are? Yep. So um, PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis, there are currently three FDA-approved um, medicines for PrEP, although only one of which, tenof- the TDF formulation, tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate uh, formulation of PrEP, has been approved for use of um, for HIV uh, prevention among folks who inject drugs. Um, it's a it's a very potent HIV prevention strategy. Uh, it mm-hmm. reduces risk of HIV by 74% um, for those with detectable medication levels and by 49% overall, uh, looking at specifically for folks who inject drugs. Uh, it's a massively underutilized tool, unfortunately. Large data really shows that our, our uptake among people who inject drugs is really uh, needs a lot of improvement. Just to kind of boil it down, do you think that you would strongly suggest or recommend PrEP for anyone who is an injection drug user? Well, a few things um, in that question. The CDC says that anyone who injects drugs who has reports any shared injection equipment, um, syringes or the cotton's cookers, um, in the last six months qualifies for PrEP, as well as any um, person who use, uh, injects drugs who requests PrEP, knowing that these types of behaviors are often quite difficult to, um, to disclose to a provider. I, I don't want to minimize the, the challenges for a patient who, with an unstable and active substance use disorder um, that, who is experiencing multiple clinical, multiple competing priorities. Um, but I think that a lot of our our meaning clinicians' reluctance to talk about PrEP with people who inject drugs is unfortunately rooted in stigma. Um, and that's very frustrating as a, as a clinician. We, we have very substantial evidence that people who inject drugs can succeed in taking daily medicines, such as for HIV, for hepatitis C treatment, um, and especially with a, appropriate community-based supports. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I actually want to ask you to, to try to put your public health hat on for a second. You know, I think a lot of our listeners may remember a very well-known case of HIV clusters in injection drug users in Indiana uh, back when Mike Pence was the governor there. Um, what can you tell us about clusters of HIV incidents and how that comes to be? And then what some of the mitigation tools are for those identified HIV clusters? Yeah. So the clusters that you're referring to, I think, are, are are using a technology called uh, molecular surveillance. It, it takes advantage of how rapidly a, the HIV virus can mutate and it can show how an outbreak is unfolding and it can connect people who might otherwise be missed by traditional public health um, methods. Can also be helpful when partners might be anonymous or a partner might not know um, the status of uh, the HIV status of their partners. Uh, so it, it's a helpful tool. I think the, the what's also what you're asking about is ways to mitigate it. You know, it, as you noted, um, for the the outbreak in 2016 in Scotts County, Indiana, that was where uh, syringe exchange was unfortunately illegal at that time, right. and that's a poli- uh, that that's a policy decision that cost um, that allowed for the transmission of HIV withholding a very evidence-based strategy uh, to prevent um, transmission of, of viral illnesses. Harm reduction, right? Mm-hmm. Dr. Braun, I did want to ask you also about some of the other PrEP options um, that are FDA approved. 
Um, there are two others. We've talked about FTC TDF or Truvada, um, but I'm hoping you can talk about the other PrEP options and whether or not they're available for uh, these types of instances with substance use disorder patients. Yeah, thanks for the question. So as you note, there are now three FDA-approved medicines for PrEP, generally speaking. There's the TDF um, FTC formulation, um, brand name is Truvada, um, the TAF FTC formulation, which is brand name is Disco-V, and the injectable cabotegravir, which is a newer addition and very exciting as a clinician in a, a primary care provider and um, HIV primary care doctor. But unfortunately, those other two formulations are not FDA approved for folks with injection risk factors. And, and the reason for that is that unfortunately, trials have systematically excluded patients who use drugs among their um, study population. So these medicines that, um, that we could have great access to that could be quite helpful. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have FDA approval for them. Um, for example, in, in cabotegravir, the long-acting injectable that was recently re released and showing really um, robust data that we don't often get in terms of prevention trials, um, folks who use drugs were, were mostly systematically excluded. They noted that the investigators could exclude folks with a substance use that, they def uh, that could be problematic was in the, the words of the study. And they also excluded folks with hepatitis C antibody positive um, results. So the population did not reflect the community that I treat. And I, I, I wish the, the trials uh, were designed differently. So you alluded earlier to treating substance use disorder itself and some of the, the, the novel uh, uh, treatments that are available for SUD. Um, so jumping back from HIV a bit and focusing on that, how do you start conversations about treatment for a patient's substance use disorder? Yeah, um, I'm a clinician. I find treating uh, substance use disorder to be very rewarding. We have very effective uh, medications and interventions for patients, depending on their substance use disorder, and and many, if not most, people get better. So those are all things that I um, I really value and is quite rewarding in my day to day work at Denver Health. Um, we have for opiate use disorder, we have three FDA approved medicines. Uh, we have methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Uh, methadone is has been the longest approved. It was approved in the seventies and been used to treat patients with opiate use disorder uh, since the sixties. And in, by some measures, it's the most effective. It um, decreases overdose. It decreases um, all-cause mortality. It decreases infectious complications. Uh, what is challenging about methadone is that it can only be delivered in uh, a, an OTP, an opioid treatment program, uh, that are federally regulated. Um, and further restrictions are applied at, at the state level. I work at an institution that fortunately has a methadone clinic within the institution, which is makes makes it more um, makes it easier to get patients in the methadone treatment. But unfortunately, it's the barriers are are real and substantial for patients. Sure, um, we a lot of the regulations um, things around the dose that we can start methadone at around policies around take homes are really have not been updated since from 1973 when it was approved until really since COVID. And, and COVID has catalyzed a lot of the changes that 
a lot of us have been saying are needed for for quite some time. Right. Um, it, it is, if I may say, it's it's frustrating as a clinician. Um, it's clear that it's not necess- all these regulations are not necessarily about the drug itself. It's more about the medical condition that I'm treating. I can and sometimes do prescribe methadone for treatment of chronic pain in my clinic, um, but I would not be able to prescribe that for a patient with OPD disorder in my clinic. Right. And there are other uh, options for those patients. Yeah. So I, I talked to folks about buprenorphine, which is also has incredibly um, robust data that it decreases overdose it, and also improves alcohol's mortality and infectious complications. It's often co-formulated with the drug naloxone in the brand name Suboxone. And that can be prescribed in any clinic um, and sent to any retail pharmacy. So my work at Denver Health is a lot of um, pr- prescribing buprenorphine, and, and we're trying to make it as, as low barrier as we can. Um, the way buprenorphine works, it's, it's, it's an opioid. It's a partial agonist, uh, which I don't want to get too medical, but it, it does decrease the risk of overdose, we think, because of that partial agonist activity. It does make it more challenging to start in some ways um, because it requires a patient to uh, be an already in moderate withdrawal before starting buprenorphine. And we used to say that, you know, wait 12 to 24 hours since last opioid use before starting. And and unfortunately, with illicitly manufactured fentanyl, it can be quite, it can stick around in your body's fat tissue for quite a long time. And and we're, it's getting harder and harder to to start it uh, under traditional methods. Luckily, we do have new uh, protocols that that help patients. get on this life-saving medicine. Sure, absolutely. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about naltrexone and whether or not that's a, an option that you tend to use with uh, SUD patients. Yeah, so um, naltrexone is FDA approved for both opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder. It's a receptor, opioid receptor antagonist, meaning that it's a blocker um, at that receptor. And it is FDA approved. Un- unlike op- uh, methadone and buprenorphine, it does not have the clear mortality benefits of the the agonist treatments, the uh, the buprenorphine and methadone, although more research is needed. Um, the, the largest barrier to starting it is that it requires at least seven to 10 days of abstinence from opioids before starting it. Um, and that that is quite challenging for for patients with a active um, substance use disorder. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it, it certainly seems like there there are there are several options, um, and, and your job is to pick the the right one. But it's certainly a, a, a positive that we do have all of these treatment options for substance use disorder here in 2023. And and I love to end these podcast episodes on a positive note. So we'll kind of put a pin in that uh, important part of the interview. But but just looking into your wish list of of public policy, um, you know, societal and healthcare system changes, what, what would you say rises to the top for you? What, what policy change or, or healthcare system change could be implemented to help you treat these clients more effectively and mitigate SUD and HIV overall? Yeah, I, I would start by saying I, I'd love to be in the, in the position where I have the opportunity to influence these types of policy um, decisions. Absolutely. We have exciting tools that are legal and or being studied in other countries um, that I, I think we're way past due for a robust conversation about that in America. 
Um, the first of which I would say are safer consumption sites, safer injection sites, overdose prevention centers, names for the same thing where uh, folks who can bring a pre-obtained substance and use it um, in the facility and have access to um, other services, um, unused fresh um, needles, uh, naloxone, Narcan, which is an opioid reversal drug, um, and can do it in a well-lit and clean environment. Um, the first two opened in New York City, the first two authorized rather, op uh, opened in New York City last year and have had quite great success. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we're able to get more authorized sites approved. Um, we, as I said, I, one of our frustrations as a clinician is that I, I need to send my patients who are interested in methadone to a methadone clinic, which even working at Denver Health, the methadone clinic is literally across the street from my, my clinic is still represents a barrier for many patients who sure. uh, just don't want to establish care with a new provider, have heard, uh, may, may have heard stigma about, you know, or have other misconceptions about, um, or real perceptions about what, what methadone treatment through a methadone clinic entails. Um, I would love to, as a primary care doctor, be able to prescribe methadone um, for opiate use disorder. This is something that is a model that exists in other countries like Canada and Australia. And I think with appropriate caution, clinical caution, we primary care doctors, outpatient addiction providers are well-equipped to manage methadone maintenance. Yeah, absolutely. This is all really important stuff. And I, I really want to thank you for being here and talking to us about HIV and substance use disorder in 2023 in the U.S., Dr. Braun, because it is such a pressing crisis that we're facing. Uh, and HIV is really only part of that, but certainly a significant uh, significant piece. But uh, thanks again for, for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge from your, uh, from your professional life. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.